0: Hi and welcome to this latest episode from 1914-1918war.com to In this episode we rather ambitiously begin an overview of the entire war in a series of podcasts I'm going to try and do a really helicopter view of the entire war one year at a time working our way from 1914 to 1918 Often it feels to me like we are so involved in the minutiae of events that it does us good to take a step back and see how things developed at a more macro level. So in this episode, we're going to begin at the beginning with 1914. As always, if you could subscribe to the podcast, that would be really helpful and it would ensure that you don't miss any future episodes. So without further ado, let's get on with 1914, Europe Goes to War. old bird Nur durch starke Berührung the sea. with wir den für uns <laughs> The Great War escalated seemingly out of nowhere following a long period of peace. The so-called Concert of Europe, formed from the great European powers, was designed to provide a forum for diffusing interstate rivalries through diplomatic action. The Concert had a good track record for avoiding war when diplomatic incidents arose, and when a crisis occurred in the Balkans, it was reasonable to assume that this crisis too would pass. By 1914 the great powers of Europe were arrayed in two great alliances that created a balance of power and generally deterred alliance members from resorting to war. On one side Germany, Austro-Hungary and Italy formed the Triple Alliance since the 1880s and on the other side Russia, France and Great Britain formed the Triple Entente formed between 1894 and 1907. When the crisis came, It was assumed that well-worn diplomatic channels and relationships would resolve and de-escalate the situation as they'd done before. But in 1914, the dynamic between the powers had changed. Crucially, some powers now saw war as being in their interests, most significantly Germany. The crisis began in Sarajevo when a group of Serbian nationalists successfully assassinated the Archduke of Austro-Hungary, Franz Ferdinand, as he went about a poorly organised visit. The Austro-Hungarian government decided that this would give them the perfect opportunity to pick a fight with its smaller neighbour and issued an ultimatum with harsh terms to the Serbian government, but only after it had checked with its German allies that they would back them up. The crisis began to spiral out of control, rapidly turning from a localised dispute to one that would involve the two great European alliances. Russia saw Serbia as within its sphere of interest and sharing a border with Austro-Hungary was well placed to intervene. German and Austro-Hungarian plans required both countries to attack Russia. However for the Germans it was not as simple as that as they were facing an alliance of the Russians in the east and the French in the west. German war planning was realistic that they would have to fight both powers and plan to move against the French first. Then, having dealt with the French, German forces would entrain and face the Russians. The whole plan was based on calculations that France would mobilise in days whilst Russia would take weeks. A short crushing blow against France would free the German army to turn and face the Russian behemoth. The German plan for defeating France was to avoid the fortified Franco-German border by sending her armies on a huge sweep through Belgium and into France's lightly defended northern border. This made military sense, but would involve violating Belgian neutrality and this violation became the casus belli for Great Britain to honour her commitments within the Entente. Thus, a localised crisis was set to become a pan-European war. In a world of mass armies, being mobilised before an opponent was a war-winning strategy. No country could allow its opponents to mobilise ahead of its own armies. It was impossible to mobilise in secret, however. Notices had to be posted and newspaper proclamations published, and no country could get left behind. Once a country mobilised, there were huge penalties for others not to follow suit, and mobilisation was never defensive. The whole point was to steal a march on your opponent. Once mobilisation started, Germany's strategic position meant that war was inevitable. As Russia mobilised against Austro-Hungary, Germany felt compelled to invade France in order to have a chance of avoiding a two-front war, and the only way to crush France quickly was to invade via Belgium. German forces mobilised according to a complex and well-rehearsed railway plan. Invading Belgium, the Germans took the citadel of the great forces of Liège in days, the remainder of the defense is being demolished by heavy artillery. By the 18th of August, the German armies were massed and executing their great flanking movement. The French countered with their predetermined response, Plan 17, a powerful thrust across the Franco-German border that foundered against the German left flank's machine guns at morange saubourg Then they tried again in the Ardennes region, striking at the German center. Meanwhile, the German right flank marched on, covering around 20 miles each day, mostly on foot, a pace that was to take its toll on regular and conscript soldiers alike. The next encounters saw the Germans maul Lanzarach's army, pushing the French line back, fracturing the join with the British. The British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, small by the standards of continental armies and forming a part of the French front, encountered the German army along the Mons-Condé Canal, and although a relatively small force, fought well before falling back under artillery fire. The French and British armies fell back in an exhausting but orderly retreat, pursued by the equally exhausted Germans who were unable to achieve the great encirclement that the German High Command dreamed of. On the Eastern Front, the Russians invaded Prussia in mid-August in line with their alliance commitments to the French. 30 Russian divisions, divided into two armies, pushed over the border in the north and the southeast with the intent of encircling the only German army facing them just across the border. However, the Russians ran into supply and communication problems in terrain fragmented by woods and lakes, whilst the Germans were operating on internal lines and benefiting from their enemy's poor, non-existent radio security. The result was a crashing defeat at Tannenberg, towards the end of August, that lost the Russians over 100,000 men, 50,000 of whom were killed or wounded. Further south, the Austro-Hungarians found themselves on the horns of a dilemma. The whole point of the war was to attack Serbia, but commitments to Germany meant that they were supposed to deploy the bulk of their forces against the Russians in Galicia, drawing Russian forces away from Germany. A compromise solution was found, throwing the Austro-Hungarian mobilisation into disarray as men and material were loaded and unloaded to cope with the vagaries of their rail network. Two armies pushed into Serbia, one being defeated in mid-August and both having to withdraw in the face of a competent enemy. Towards the end of August, the Austro-Hungarians made good progress in the north against Russian Poland, However, on their eastern border, the Austro-Hungarians were outnumbered and overwhelmed. By early September, they were falling back to defend along the Carpathian Mountains. Back on the Western Front, as the Germans approached Paris, the French were able to stabilise their front and counter-attack along the River Marne with multiple French armies and the BEF. The Germans were halted at the Battle of the Marne and then pushed back, threatened with encirclement and forced to retreat before digging in along a defensive line on the River Aisne. The Germans' chance of a quick victory in the west was over. The German High Command's commitment to the planned Great Right Hook began to wane as they allocated troops to screening the forts of Antwerp and Mauberge and reinforcing their eastern front. With the front solidifying wherever the armies in the west faced each other, the opposing forces began a series of attempts to outflank each other towards the north A series of encounters that became known as the Race to the Sea. A series of battles in Picardy, Artois and Flanders throughout September and October were characterised by neither side being able to move rapidly enough to turn the flank of their enemies, leading them inexorably towards the coast. The opposing sides ran out of space to execute outflanking manoeuvres in the low-lying plains around Flanders. With no room to manoeuvre, Both sides began to reinforce or improve the positions they held and the Germans, reinforced by new conscripts, launched a major attack around Ypres to try and force the Allies out of Belgium. The British army faced the onslaught with 60,000 casualties using up the remainder of its original army as it defended a great salient that on military grounds probably should have been given up. The Belgian army lost a third of its strength whilst the Germans lost a further 130,000 men. All along the Western Front, both sides began to dig in and to extend trenches to form continuous defensive lines. The Germans, facing a war on two fronts, took the decision to move on to the defensive in the west, and their fortifications reflected this. By contrast, the Allies clung to the offensive, having the imperative to free their territory from the invader, and their defences tended therefore to be less developed. In the east, distances were greater, with lesser concentrations of manpower. Here a war of movement remained possible, but the great distances meant that there was always space to remedy setbacks. Here Germany had to contend with supporting their unreliable Austro-Hungarian ally. The Austro-Hungarians had lost half a million men, with a further 120,000 besieged in the fortress of Zemershal. A German army under Ludendorff was duly sent to support the Austro-Hungarians. Further east, the Ottoman Empire, Turkey smarting from the British appropriation of a pair of modern battleships that were nearing completion in Newcastle, decided to enter the war on the side of the Central Powers. Two German battleships were sent to Turkey, manned by German sailors wearing Turkish costumes, and attacked Russian ports in the Black Sea at the end of October. The Triple Entente Powers duly declared war on the Ottoman Empire, further globalising the war. And so, the end of 1914 saw two power blocks with enormous resources engaged in a vicious struggle that spanned most of Europe and reached far out into the wider world. Early thoughts of a quick victory gave way to realisation that there was no clear path to victory on the fronts now sprawling across the map. Hope you enjoyed that whistle-stop tour of 1914. Obviously it's light on some detail, but I hope that we've captured the scope of the, uh, the war for that year. The next episode in this mini-series will be 1915, unimaginatively. If you want to hear it, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and I'll look forward to you joining us then. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 1914 to 1918war.com. Bye.